Welcome to the Orange County Catholic Radio Show. Each week, we bring you compelling conversation with church leaders and laity, talking about the things going on in our diocese and discussing the important issues that impact the world around us. We're coming to you from our studios on the campus of Christ Cathedral in Garden Grove, where Catholic faith is crystal clear. Here now to introduce our guest and today's topic is your host, Rick Howick. And welcome to Orange County Catholic Radio. I'm Rick Howick, your host. And with me today is one of our favorite guests, Father Robert Spitzer. Father, welcome back to the show. Always great to be with you, Rick. And before we get started on any of what we're going to talk about today, would you please begin us with a brief word of prayer? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we know from our faith that life begins at fertilization, that you... um, have asked us to respect all life uh, from the very beginning, from the, uh, its conception in the womb to uh, the very end of natural death. We ask you, Lord, to help us uh, be really good evangelizers of the cause of the culture of life and to help us within our church to have a unanimity to fight for that life continuously until we have a reversal of this decision that has opened the door to so many tragic deaths. We ask all of these things through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. And Mary, seat of wisdom, pray pray for for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Amen. Amen. And for our listening audience, in case you hadn't noticed, we are talking about uh, abortion today. So you might want to keep that in mind if you've got little ears that are listening, that uh, this will be a show that will be pretty free-rolling on how we talk about this. Mm-hmm. I think I said that well. So mm-hmm. let me go ahead and start for a moment with the, some of the the Catholic understandings of where mm-hmm. life begins. Of course, we know that God, we were created in the image and likeness of God at the beginning. Right. But there's some interesting verses that give us even more of a clue as to how we should be looking at life in the womb. Jeremiah says very early on in chapter 1, the prophet Jeremiah says that the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So if we're looking at personhood, there it is. If we're looking at Psalm 139, about halfway through in verse 13, Mm -hmm. for it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. If we're looking at a theme between those two and many other verses that are very similar in the Old Testament, Mm -hmm. uh, the theme is that there's personhood to the baby inside the mother's womb. We Catholics understand that. Mm -hmm. So from a, a Catholic perspective, that is a ground that we really hold to as a a dogma of the church, not just a doctrine. God created the child in the womb, and it's a person. Yes, I mean, it's in every Old Testament passage, and of course you've uh, mentioned uh, several of uh, them, and 
There are several other psalms. And in addition to that, of course, you have the Mary and Elizabeth story in Luke. That pretty clearly says everything, that uh, certainly the two babies are interacting with each other uh, before they are born. And uh, they're already being called the prophet of the Savior and the Savior. So uh, pretty clearly uh, we have uh, a precedent there. And, of course, just from the dogmatic point of view, from the doctrinal point of view, the early church, the very earliest church, right, the Didache, uh, which is somewhere between the late 80s and 90s, you know, somewhere yeah. in that area, says right away, any abortion is a sin against God. So, I mean, that you're not going to get an earlier dogmatic or doctrinal uh, precedent in the church fathers. So that's uh, pretty clear from the word go. I mean, 80 to 90, you know, the, the evangelist John is still alive and the gospel is still being uh, yeah. set out there. So, you know, as as far back as then... Uh, we see that the church is already proclaiming the sinfulness of abortion. Well, and even if we just continue with the Didache for for just a moment mm-hmm. and, and explore what you just said, mm-hmm. so that's actually then a reaffirmation of what we already saw in these scriptures, which had been gathered into what we call the Tanakh, the the whole mm-hmm. gathering, not just mm-hmm. the five books of Moses, but mm-hmm. all of them together. They'd been gathered really in the last couple hundred years before. This is what Jesus mm-hmm. then worked with. Here, mm-hmm. that Didache, most scholars believe, was based on, it started at life as a Jewish instruction that the Christians then took and mm-hmm. modified, because after all, we are completed Jews. Mm-hmm. Catholics have their Messiah. <laughs> we, we had mm-hmm. our Messiah come. So what we're saying is that this is not something that even Christians invented. Mm-hmm. This is something that goes back not only to the time of Jesus, but it has been a consistent constant All in our way doctrine. through the whole revelation from the time of Abraham onwards. And, of course, you have uh, uh, no question the divine aspect of that uh, where Jesus says, you know, about the children, their angels the angels of the children, you know, gaze into my heavenly father's eyes. Well, nothing, you know, could be a greater prerogative than that. If, yeah. if of course, little pre-born children are really children, they have angels already. They're already uh, in favor. And you pointed out Psalm 139 so beautifully. It was God who knit that child together from my mother's womb. You pronounced my name in Jeremiah. And, and, and it is... So galling then when you read that, that God knit them together, and, and I don't want to go into any description at all, mm-hmm. but there are ways that abortionists work that are almost the, the opposite Absolutely. of that, to, to the horror of, mm-hmm. of people who understand that. Absolutely. And, and it raises an interesting point that we've been struggling with, bishops have been struggling with, but it sounds like they really shouldn't be. That the doctrine's pretty clear, the dogma really is pretty clear, that mm-hmm. these are human beings who are in the womb. To kill the human being in the womb is to kill a human being. An innocent human being, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which means we're guilty of murder and when we yeah. do this, if That's we do right. it intentionally. Yeah, and, intentionally for no reason. And that would yeah. be a mortal sin, and you should yeah. not present yourself to communion if you committed a mortal sin. Yeah. I don't want to go any further with that because of the yeah. politics in the church mm-hmm. that have gotten involved, but it seems to me as we're thinking about mm-hmm. all of this, the bottom line is there is nothing unclear about that child being the person that it will be 
already is. Yeah, I mean, no question about that. I mean, as you pointed out, throughout the whole of Scripture, without any exception, and throughout the church's, you know, apostolic life, you know, where it began to declare uh, moral doctrines. As I said, the Didache is the earliest example we have, and there's a clear indication, not indication, clear declaration that abortion is a murder. So we have a pretty clear indication from uh, unwavering church uh, tradition that that is the case. And I'd hasten to add, too, it's also the case from the vantage point of science. Well, and I want to get into that in just a moment, Mm -hmm. because we have, we Catholics have been accused by some secularists that this is all just a, a part of our religion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And in fact, we had one of the justices of the Supreme Court make an assertion toward that Mm -hmm. uh, not that long ago. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. I don't want to denigrate anyone on the court. But there have been some statements that have been made by many people that make it sound as if somehow we're only making a religious argument. What we've been talking Mm -hmm. about so far is, what we've been saying so far is, that we believe that God creates human beings as somehow special, mm-hmm. that a human being has more value, say, than a pig or a cow or a fish or, or a newt, mm-hmm. and that it's from the earliest moment where the, the DNA creates the blueprint mm-hmm. for a new human being in a DNA code that will now replicate itself for the entire life out to the, the 70s, 90s, 110 if they live that long. Mm-hmm. For the rest of their life will be that same DNA code, mm-hmm. and it starts at fertilization. Mm-hmm. That That is something that we be, believe is something that is empowered by the Spirit of God to be sacred, to be special, because we are in the image and likeness of God. And no one is allowed to shed the blood of a human being mm-hmm. without committing murder. Mm-hmm. Totally. So that is a religious moral argument mm-hmm. so far. Mm-hmm. But you've been you mentioned just a moment ago that mm-hmm. we don't just rely on that. That gives us the direction we're going, but we believe, we Catholics believe that there is science and faith that go together. Science and reality go together. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've heard it said uh that scripture is what we have the word of God. But the world is the thumbprint of God. It's not mm-hmm. that hard to find it in there. So that they should go hand in hand. Faith and reason uh, mm-hmm. is something mm-hmm. that has been a consistent study for many years. Pope John Paul II did a whole discussion on it mm-hmm. in his encyclical, uh, Fides et Ratio, that mm-hmm. it is our faith that is reasonable, and it is in, it is reasonable in the secular world as well. It mm-hmm. is truth. Correct. And uh, I think um, the evidence is pretty clear. If people want to take a look at a very interesting study that was done, there are you know these Amicus Curiae briefs, uh, and they're filed along with um, you know the decisions that come up. And the, uh, I think everybody knows that the Dobbs versus Jackson uh, Women's Healthcare uh, Center uh, that that decision is coming up. But if you go to the Dobbs decision and you just type into your Google. Uh, amicus curiae uh, briefs the very one of the very first ones one or two is one that's submitted by the american legal society 
And in that, you can see that uh, several polls, several surveys were sent out to Ph.D. biologists, both internationally and in this country. Uh, In the international one, uh, the vast majority, over 80 percent, basically said that uh, fertilization was the beginning of a new human life. And then in the national one that was done, 67% of the uh, PhD biologists that uh, the, the uh, survey was sent to said that fertilization was the beginning of a new human being. Now, after that, right, there's, there's 10% will say, well, it's viability, uh, which is, you know, of course, the most transitory thing in the world because viability depends upon uh, technology could also depend upon, you know, uh, what county uh, you're born in. So if you have a rural hospital versus a city hospital, uh, viability may be two weeks extended yeah. um, by being born in the rural uh, a hospital, et cetera. So, of course, that can't be an objective determinant of when human life begins. So most people, except, of course, about 10% of biologists, I guess, think you can call it an objective standard, but it isn't, frankly. Uh, there's just two other objective standards that are left. Uh, the first one is the one that some biologists choose outside the womb. That's it, you know. And of course, that makes no sense whatsoever either, uh, because of course you have not only viability, but you have uh, you know viability that goes all the way back to I think about twenty four weeks or twenty five weeks somewhere of that uh, in that area. So of course, why would you kill that baby if they're viable just by uh, an arbitrary standard like being born outside the womb. So then you've got just the other one left. Of course, the Dobbs decision makes reference to uh, fetal brain waves, which I think are maybe uh, now picked up at about six weeks, or uh, fetal heartbeat, which is about seven and a half to eight and a half weeks, depending on the study you look at. But of course, that goes way back to the first uh, couple of months of uh, conception in the womb. And so that's uh, the, the main competitor. All the other ones really are arbitrary. They can't be objective. So we've got just a, a few things there. But clearly, the majority, the majority of biologists believe that fertilization is the point at which science determines the beginning of new human life. You're listening to Orange County Catholic Radio. With me today is Father Robert Spitzer. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about the science and faith behind the pro-life position. Welcome back to Orange County Catholic Radio. I'm Rick Howick, your host. With me today is Father Robert Spitzer, who is on loan to us from the Magis Center and from a number of different activities that he's been involved with. Thank you, Father, for being willing to come in and chat with us during this time when we are asked to turn our minds, hearts, and souls, really, toward um, this issue, which stands before us where where millions and millions and millions and millions of human beings, our brothers and sisters, have been killed. And it's done in the name of freedom for some. But the reality is this has always been understood up until recently as a crime against a human being. Mm -hmm. 
And in fact, in the Nuremberg trials, when we tried the the Nazis for crimes against humanity, one of the crimes that many of them were charged with was forced abortions, mm-hmm. that those were crimes against humanity because you were killing human beings. Mm-hmm. It's only been recently that we have had this very serious uh, challenge to that traditional understanding. How is it that the reasoning, the philosophy came to be in the Roe versus Wade decision to, to go so far as to say that you have a right to kill your child? Yeah. How did that come about? You know, three basic flaws, not only in a legal uh, evidential precedent, but also logical fallacies that came about. The first, I mean, the, the way the decision was written was set up basically to enable, sanction, right, abortion. And the first thing um, the justices did was they uh, sort of took this cursory overview and said, okay, uh, when does life begin? So some theologians disagreed, some biologists disagreed, uh, before the science was really set as it is today, etc. And he said, okay, so we're uncertain as to when life begins. The very first flaw that the justices make as they say, the states do not have a duty to protect the, the right of, of fetus because we're not certain when life begins. Never before do we have a, a precedent that has been inscribed into the laws that says when you're not certain, you can go ahead and kill a person. Can you imagine <laughs> saying, uh, you know, passing a law that says, okay, uh, a hunter goes down and, and um, you know, he says to his friend, you know, go down there. I think there's some pray down there, shake on the bushes, and I'll kill it when it comes out. So a guy goes down there and shakes on the bushes. The, the, his friend killed, you know, shoots him 15 times and, and says, well, I wasn't sure whether it was him, so I fired and, and I killed him. Uh, would the ignorance <laughs> be an excuse for killing the person? Of course not. This is as, this is as stupid as going up to a room with a yeah. hand grenade. Without looking in, just opening the door, tossing the hand grenade, closing it up. Well, I didn't know if there were people in there, so I was. So I went ahead and did it. Yeah. You know, so, so if you're going to sanction, you know, killing on the basis of uncertainty, I mean, are you kidding me? (laughs) Who does this? Well, the Supreme Court did, or the majority of the Supreme Court did it. And so that's the first flaw that you you just have to get out of that decision. The second flaw in, in the decision is that the science is ambiguous at the time. So instead of waiting uh, for the science to be resolved, and there were many of the doctors interviewed who said that one day the the science will resolve this. Now, of course, we've got this amicus curiae brief. Which Uh, really solves it. It it says (laughs) the science is in. Even I remember that report. I saw that report come out of Chicago University. And it was a it was a guy who was conducting research, and he yeah. got all these things in. Yeah. The majority of the scientists that answered identified as atheists, and yeah. yet they said it begins at, at fertilization. Life does. Yeah, yeah. The biologist did. Yeah, yeah that's interesting because you know sixty six percent of young scientists anyway are atheists. But uh, anyway, the long and the short of it is, these biologists they they do admit it. And of course, when the two gametes come together, we now know you have a full human genome. Uh, so in other words, when you've got the egg and the sperm unite, you've got 
got uh, a full human genome that's there that determines just about everything physical that's going to happen to this person. But more importantly, what science shows is that you have a zygote there. And the zygote is a very particular kind of cell. It's not going to go away. Yes, it, it's true that, you know, the, the zygote is going to be the unity for all of the cell separations that happen uh, into the future. But basically, you not only have the genome as the unity of the human being from the very beginning, but actually the zygote. And as it's multiplying, it becomes the unity of all these cells that are coming out of it for the rest of the life of that human being. So, again, science is pretty much saying yeah, fertilization is the beginning of a new human being, a new human zygote, this special cell which multiplies and keeps the unity of this whole human being together, this DNA molecule which is going to share, be in every single cell that uh, is now going to be replicated from this single uh, human zygote that coming together, the two, the egg and the sperm there. And so uh, essentially scientists don't disagree. Atheist scientists don't disagree. Let's face it, science has resolved the question. Well, that means that Roe v. Wade's going to have to be definitely redone just on the basis of the science and not on the basis, uh, not solely on the basis of the illogic of, you know, uh, sanctioning killing when you're uncertain as to whether a human being exists. So that's the, the, the second, second flaw that, that happened. The, the third thing uh, that's amazing about the Roe decision is now the victim has to actually prove himself to be a, or herself to be a person before he can get rights under the law. But let's examine why that is the case. What, what the, uh, the justices did was uh, they searched for a precedent and in the Constitution and in constitutional precedents that were defined by the Supreme Court to see if fetal life is uh, definitively protected. Well, as a matter of fact, it is. There's several uh, decisions which show that fetal um, human beings have rights. They have rights of inheritance. And of course, you can try a person for deliberately murdering the preborn child of another human being. And you don't have to want the child. If you deliberately murder that child, there it is. It's a murder. And and the, and the courts have, have declared it to be so. But for some reason, the courts restricted that and said under the 14th Amendment. So they weren't willing just to take the precedents which already existed. By the way, not only Supreme Court precedents, not only common law precedents, but you know any precedent whatsoever that, that a federal court had jurisdiction of. And they limited it to uh, whether or not that was the case for the 14th Amendment because they're trying to bring the states into it. 14th Amendment says that there's not going to be any... Uh, no state shall deprive entire, any person of life, liberty, or property. That's correct. The process of law. Sorry to interrupt. No, no, that's... A, I had the quote right yeah, here. It's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. So it's about states. So what uh, happened, of course, was to, this was restricted to Texas alone in the Roe v. Wade decision. And, of course, then the decision was said, well, is there a, a precedent which talks about states alone having this right? But wait a minute here. Either fetuses have rights under federal law to be protected or they don't. And in so far as they do under federal law and the 
precedents are writ large, then of course it's going to follow that the states in following federal law must observe it. So that's already been there. So they, it was a crafty way of getting around that. But then, then after they say, oh, we couldn't find a constitutional precedent. Okay. Then they say, therefore, we, the Supreme Court, have the right to sanction the killing of that life. No, you don't. Because the, exactly what we, we see in our Declaration of Independence, we see that there are also inalienable rights. Rights which belong to every single individual by their very human existence. Notice that the Bill of Rights does not explicitly protect the inalienable rights of individuals. Well, why doesn't it? Because if you allow a constitution to declare a right into existence, like what was done in the Bill of Rights, right? so you have this whole lineup of of rights, the state is declaring those rights into existence, and therefore the state may one day have the right to undeclare to them, take them away, to take them away, and so once you know the the our our founding fathers were not dummies; they basically said, "Hey, wait a minute." We do not want to put this in the Constitution, which is a declarative document, which would make the right to life an extrinsic right. This right to life is an inalienable right. And so they fall back onto the natural law, which is stated where? In our Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths. We, the citizens, we hold these truths to be self-evident that every uh, person is born, is created equal, and uh, endowed with their creator by the inalienable rights, right, that cannot be separated from to be a human existent, to be a human being, and to have inalienable rights are one and the same thing. They can't be alienated from you. They belong to you by your very nature of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So uh, basically, they, instead of going, uh, Going back to what the inalienable right of the child is under any form of common law and by the self-evident nature of those rights to belong to the person and not to the state to declare out of existence, the Supreme Court in, completely ignored inalienable rights. It's the most basic thing that has ever been done. They just said, well, we didn't find any precedents that fit under the 14th Amendment. Therefore, I guess there aren't any. So we got the right to go ahead and sanction killing here. And by the way, we're not going to even look at the inalienable rights of, of these individuals uh, in terms of their human existence. And, of course, when in doubt, we can go ahead and sanction killing. So you've got these three flaws that are there, and now we've got an outrage, and it needs to be corrected. The science is in. We know what that is. And the Supreme Court justices, I think, really uh, in Dobbs, are going to actually come around to And I think they have to, because once you take out the viability criterion in Casey, I think you're going to have to overturn Roe in order to allow Dobbs the Dobbs decision to hold. So um, we basically uh, the Missouri statute to hold. And well, so it's going to it's going to be interesting. And this is this is there's a historical piece that was ignored as well when they put that decision together. It goes all the way back to it mm-hmm. where the interpretation of the 14th Amendment was that it was going to protect all people. And they understood that to be so. 
you had not only the understanding at the time where you had many of the states that mm-hmm. passed the 14th Amendment also had laws in the books that forbade abortion. Yeah. Uh, the Ohio legislature ratified the 14th Amendment in early 1867, and just mm-hmm. a few months later, that same legislator voted to strengthen Ohio's abortion law. Mm-hmm. So from their perspective, the people who put this amendment together mm-hmm. understood that there was no conflict between taking a stance against abortion and having the 14th Amendment. Yeah, no, I think that's very true. And like I said, our founding fathers deliberately did not put the uh, inalienable rights into a state-declared document. would have made it an extrinsic right, but it belongs to every human being by their very nature. No state has the right to take away the right to life. When we come back, I I want to address where we go from here a little bit, because Mm -hmm. if Roe versus Wade is overturned in the way that I think most people are saying it's likely to, Mm-hmm. What does that mean, and, and where does the movement need mm-hmm. to go? Okay. You're listening to Orange County Catholic Radio. With me today is Father Robert Spitzer, and we are talking about the pro-life movement and the Catholic response, and we will be right back. Welcome back to Orange County Catholic Radio, coming to you high atop the Tower of Hope in beautiful Garden Grove, California, on the campus of Christ Cathedral, where Catholic faith is crystal clear. (laughs) I'm Rick Howick, your host, and with me today is Father Robert Spitzer, and we have been discussing the pro-life movement, and in specific form, the Roe v. Wade decision along with what it has meant, why it is so flawed, and why it's not just a Catholic thing. This is just from a logical perspective, from a scientific perspective, it's flawed. Mm -hmm. It's got to be overturned. So let's assume for a moment, Father, that we have a ruling that comes down very narrowly. There are a number of people who are speculating that if it's a 5-4 decision initially behind the scenes, It'll end up being a 6-3 decision because you might have a, another member, a senior member, mm-hmm. pop in in order to to be able to determine how the ruling is written. And mm-hmm. if it's written very narrowly, it's likely to only overturn the decision of Roe versus Wade. And it is unlikely to do anything about the initial case, which was brought back all the way back in the early 1970s that basically asked for a recognition of the Supreme Court that the 14th Amendment guarantees the protection of unborn life, Mm -hmm. which was the original intent, and it got turned on its ear. In this case, let's assume for a moment that it only says, no, there is no recognized constitutional right to an abortion that is therefore under the purview of the rights that are left to the states. Mm -hmm. And now it becomes a state's issue. Where do we Catholics go from here? Some states are going to immediately invoke their laws that say no abortions, and other states are going to say abortions absolutely and y'all come. Mm-hmm. What do we do? Well, first of all, I mean, uh, I'm still going to rejoice in the victory because 26 states, by my calculation, will probably say no to abortion pretty much all over the place, yeah. uh, all the way down to uh, conception and fertilization. 
Uh, some will have some criteria there, like fetal heartbeat or something. But by and large, it's going to be much more restricted in about 26 states. There's going to be some hemming and hawing in about 12 of those states. And then, of course, you know that there's going to be several of these states that will have almost unlimited abortion uh, going forward. Like California. Like California. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. So um, uh, having said that, yes, it could create a parade of people coming over to those states to get abortions, but it will never be at the level that it is today. So that that's a first step. Now, again, you know, there's all kinds of things going on in, in the Supreme Court. I mean, I, I suppose I shouldn't name names, but I mean, I think the Chief Justice is is the key figure in, in, involved in this. If Chief Justice Roberts does decide to write a very narrow decision, and he might, then I'm thinking that uh, four to five of the other justices may write a concurrent um, decision. I mean, just, again, wanting to uh, overturn Roe, but they might want to overturn it on different criteria. Now, he would be, in a sense, writing the decision uh, for the majority, but you can have concurrent decisions in, you know, for, in the same direction. So if those justices were to write a concurrent decision with much stricter criteria in it, it could pave the way by at least an implicit Supreme Court precedent to strengthen the law going farther. Let me pause for just a moment to make mm-hmm. sure that our, our listening audience understands what you're saying and why mm-hmm. you're saying it. So in the Supreme Court, when you have, say, a decision that's made by by five or six of the justices, because you have to have a majority of the nine, mm-hmm. and the five or six, it's the senior member mm-hmm. in that majority that determines who's going to write it, and mm-hmm. sometimes they'll take it on themselves to write uh-huh. it. That's right. So if, let's say, for example, it was a 5-4 decision and, and Roberts was not on it, because as the head of the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. he's automatically got seniority. Mm-hmm. The next one down would likely be Justice Thomas, and Justice Thomas, it is expected, would write a a broad decision, a very Mm -hmm. broad, far-reaching decision, whereas if Roberts joins it, perhaps, which he's done before, or at least it's been speculated he's done before, Mm -hmm. where he's joined the majority so that he then becomes the senior person and therefore can write a much more narrow uh, Mm -hmm. statement. It would then be, it's the difference of who is going to be in charge of Roberts. Roberts would mm-hmm. likely write a mm-hmm. more narrow decision than mm-hmm. what Thomas would write. Is that essentially the issue? And that's essentially the issue. But um, though that would be the standing law, basically, that he would write, and then it would go back to the states. Again, you could have the, those other five justices say, well, we have a, a stricter criteria. We don't want to just overturn the issue with respect to the states and the states needing the right to to protect or the state citizens having the ultimate right to determine whether um, abortion should be legal, right? We think actually that it should be strengthened. We think that the science now being in place and by far, right, all the biologists in the world, you've got not just a majority, you have a super majority of biologists that are saying, well, really, uh, the science says fertilization is the beginning of a new human being. More than 80%. That's, That's right. And every single time in the history of the law, not just in the United States or Supreme Court precedents, every time we've decided to separate personhood, 
right? Uh, a person has uh, inalienable rights, recognize inalienable rights. They have to have rights protected under the law, right? If you separate human being from personhood, what happens then? Hmm, let's go back to the slavery issue. As we saw going all the way back into the 1500s, how did they justify slavery? They basically said, oh, slaves, yeah, okay, we acknowledge they're human beings, but they're not persons under the law. Well, if you're not persons under the law, you are relegated to the status of property. You basically become property. And that's exactly what they wanted to do. And when the Virginia statute, going back, I think, to 1680s or 1640s, i got to look these things up. But the main thing is there's a Virginia statute that starts off right away trying to protect slavery. And immediately the first thing they want to do is relegate uh, slaves to non-persons. That makes them chattel. Chattels like movable property. Like cows or or horses or or pigs. That's right. But it's property belongs to some other human being, but it's movable. And so the the idea then is, okay, slaves become reduced to the status of animals, but they're human beings. They're not animals. And so the the point, of course, is for years, no, almost a, a century, no, for a century and a half, we have persons, human beings being declared chattel, non-persons, in the law until finally, of course, the Emancipation Proclamation and then, of course, the 14th Amendment, etc., um, after the Civil War. Now, the main thing to consider, though, is we're going to have to do the very same thing. And the reason that Thomas and Alito, uh, just Thomas, just Alito, is, the reason they want to do what they want to do in giving a stronger concurrent decision is they want to make sure that the decision is not just about the states having the right to declare the issue for their citizenry. They want to expand the issue to, no, every human being is a person deserving, having in their very personhood inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, if that is the case, and a strong decision could be rendered later, in other words, they're not deciding against having, uh, you know, a decision made on the basis of science. If the Supreme Court under Justice Roberts writing, Supreme Court, uh, the Chief Justice Roberts writing the decision, if he's to say, well, really, it's all about states' rights, okay, that's there, but he's not saying it's not about science. So maybe the other five come along and say, aha, well, it really is not just about states' rights. It's really about when does human personhood begin? Science has established that a human being exists, right? The majority of, you know, scientists, atheists, non-atheists, right, theists, you know, religious, all pretty much agree, a supermajority of them agree, it begins at fertilization. If that is the case, 
then what we can see is that a concurrent decision would say, no, there's another problem with Roe. And the problem with Roe is that it was decided on ambiguity about when life begins. Such ambiguity doesn't occur anymore. That means that the issue of personhood is up for grabs. We are now going to do the same thing we did in Dred Scott. By the way, the, the Dred Scott versus Sanford decision is that was the Supreme Court decision where the Supreme Court unanimously decided that these uh, black, Negro African Americans were not persons under the law, basically chattel. Okay, now, once that was done, we know all the mischief, the Civil War that happened. Now, we're back at it again. So I think you're going to have a concurrent decision from five justices or so, and what they're going to say is essentially this. Roe is wrong on two points. Not just the state's rights point, but the personhood point. It really does matter when human life begins, because you cannot declare a human being to be a non-person, to be chattel, to be property of another human being. And once you do that, then you can, you know, again, sanction murder in California, right? And, and so we've got to stop this issue where the justice or the injustice begins. And the injustice begins at the implicit declaration that human beings, fetal human beings, are not uh, persons in the eyes of the law. They're chattel, therefore, uh, according to the law. And once you do that, of course, you've got the problem. Uh, the same problem we had with slavery, and it's never going to go away because the injustice is so profound and the injustice is perpetrated on innocent human beings for no other reason than they are inconvenient. And this this has got to stop because it is a fundamental injustice and it is done for so, you know, 800,000 people a year, whatever it may be in the United States and millions uh, across the world has got to stop. And I think the, uh, a lot of our justices are going to say, you know, if we got a narrow decision, there's got to be a concurrent one that has the personhood and rights issue decided. Wow. I deeply pray that you are correct and that we will have that come down because that would give us then the, the framework to protect, at least with inalienable rights. Now, we're not talking about the rights of that are out there for freedom of speech or for uh, mm -hmm. when you become a citizen. These are the basic rights of a human being to have the right to live, mm -hmm. and that would be guaranteed under what you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. We are talking with Father Robert Spitzer, who is discussing the ramifications of the Roe versus Wade decision and its possible overturning by the Supreme Court and why Catholics need to be involved in this. When we come back, I want to talk about some of the complications that are likely to come for Catholics as we emerge from the aftermath. You're listening to Orange County Catholic Radio. I'm Rick Howick, your host, and we will be right back. And welcome back to Orange County Catholic Radio. I'm Rick Howick, your host, and with me today has been and continues to be Father Robert Spitzer from the Magis Center and many other uh, activities. Father, you are a very, very busy person. You are on EWTN. You are here. You're there. You're everywhere. Mm -hmm. 
you're blind. You have difficulty getting around. Today, for example, you are without your normal guide because she's at home quarantining just in Uh case. Thank you very, very much for taking the time to come in and talk with us today on this very, very important topic. Oh, it's my honor. And of course, I feel the same way you do. I think it's exceedingly important. Let's stop the injustice and the murder. So that, that brings up a couple of questions for me. I'm going to assume for a moment that we're going to come up with one of two scenarios where they're going to have what you are hoping mm-hmm. for, or we're going to have something a little bit short of that where mm-hmm. it goes back to the States. Mm-hmm. What does that do to us as Catholics, many of whom, frankly, have been, I think, lulled into a, a sense of, well, there's nothing we can do about it because the Supreme Court has to rule. Well, not anymore. It's going to be up to the states. And what if you're in a state like California where they permit the killing of human beings and there's something that you might be able to do about it? What onus is that put on Catholics? Well, I think we have to do a lot of things uh, to help people who, first of all, get involved in it. For a long time, Planned Parenthood has been indicating that uh, there's no such thing as post-abortion syndrome, but in fact, there really is. There is a fantastic study that was done originally for the British Journal of Psychiatry involving 750,000 women. And um, it's now on the Cambridge uh, University uh, website and has been there for several years. Uh, Priscilla... Uh, I'm just having a uh, my senior moment here, uh, but it was uh, it's a fantastic study, and what it shows is that there really is such a thing as uh, post-abortion syndrome. You can expect that uh, 81% of people will have a much greater uh, possibility of mental health problems if they have an abortion than if they don't. And that includes, basically, I think it is a 3.1 times increase in suicides, a 2.1 times increase in suicidal contemplation, and, of course, uh, increases in depression, increases in anxiety. I forget all the, uh, the various uh, breakdown of the statistics. But uh, post-abortion syndrome, it has been established. It very much exists. It does cause depression and anxiety. It does cause increased alcoholism. It does uh, cause um, uh, suicidal contemplation and suicides. There is a huge amount of grief and remorse. And so that's one angle that we have to deal with because, of course, people have the abortion. They have a temporary sense of whew, that problem's over with until, of course, it begins to come up about a year later uh, when one begins to think of just exactly what they have done, and especially in light of contemporary science that shows that this really is a human being. I killed my own child. There's something there that has to be reconciled. We can help. There's I mean, Rachel's Vineyard. There's all kinds of life perspectives, right, that that are doing really good job helping young ladies and uh, middle-aged ladies, um, elderly ladies, who have had an abortion and are feeling tremendously grieved and guilty about it. All these it. years later, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's one angle that's there. A second thing is... I do think uh, we have to nationally uh, start thinking about that decision. Let's suppose we do get a majority decision that was written by a narrow one, written by Chief Justice Roberts, but we get a concurrent one with five justices 
that say we got to decide the human being personhood issue, the science issue, which was wrong, dead wrong, way back when Roe v. Wade was issued. Well, if that is the case, then we have to start looking for other precedents. And since you have if five justices go with a concurrent decision that wants the decision to be made on the basis of the human being, human life, personhood issue, then all we need is one more case to come. But this time, the case is all about deciding it, right? It could be tailored to decide it on the basis of um, when human life begins and when personhood begins, which science can establish to be at conception. So that could be a 5-4 decision, which would be a stronger decision in the future. So we got to be really diligent about this. Now, of course, we, we as just regular citizens, you know, <laughs> we need to depend on uh, good people uh, to, to do this, Alliance Defending Freedom and all the, the various groups that are out there doing pro-life advocacy. And, you know, that in concert with our good Supreme Court justices, uh, maybe again we could have a state that does pass a law, but this time passes a law, you know, where it calls forth a determination on the basis of personhood rather than just on uh, states' rights. So that's a, a second area where I think we could uh, say that. Another thing that I think is why wouldn't we try at this point? Once you, if you've got at least 26 states, and maybe you get another seven or eight of them in there that have really restrictive abortion laws, I would try for a constitutional amendment because a constitutional amendment would force, right, the state legislatures. And boy, a lot of state legislatures and governorships are going in the right direction. At the very same time, we have this decision being overturned by Dobbs. So there could be a constitutional amendment movement to actually protect the life of human beings yeah. all the way through. There are so, a lot of, there, not to interrupt, but there are, mm-hmm. there are a number of people who will be affected by the Supreme Court making the declaration, mm-hmm. which could move some of these uh, legislatures, legislators within the legislatures toward mm-hmm. the pro-life movement because once mm-hmm. you once you start calling something and then naming it as as legal, people begin to look at it from a moral perspective differently mm-hmm. than when they're just speculating. If the mm-hmm. Supreme Court declares in f- these five mm-hmm. concurrences mm-hmm. that hey, life begins by uh, scientific um, determination, uh, determination and and uh, agreement that life begins at fertilization. We need to to act on this, even if in the past we have been unsure. Mm-hmm. We need to to change. Yeah, I think I that's think entirely possible. And the state legislatures is a good way of doing it because I think they are more prone to act on behalf of citizenry without having to look to the what I call the federal politics uh, thing. You know what's going on in the Congress and the Senate. Uh, they can make these decisions as a state on their own where there's you know, much more freedom uh, to act in concert with maybe the concurrent decision rather than to act uh, on behalf of the decision written by the, the Chief Justice. So all of that being said, you know, there's, there might be some real ground swell for a, um, a constitutional amendment. So that would be another thing that we could really do. And, of course, uh, you know, for me, I'd uh, definitely say, you know, if you live in a state, and this is really important, if you live in a state 
where, you know, let's suppose Roe gets turned over on the basic states' rights issue. It goes back to the states. Let's say you live in one of the wavering states where it could go either way. You've got to rally up all your pro-life groups, and you, we have to just start lobbying legislators, state legislators, governors, and above all in the midterm elections, get pro-life governors and state legislators elected. Uh, so when the time comes, I mean, already there is some good signs uh, from uh, some special elections that happened where we got some unexpected surprises about the governorships. Let's just rally around these things. Uh, I know people think it's all going to be decided in federal politics. It may not be. It actually, first of all, if it goes back to the states, your state legislature and governor will be exceedingly important. So if you live in a wavering state, you really have to get on the bandwagon and get a governor, a pro-life governor and a pro-life uh, set of legislators elected. And then if something should happen even uh, going forward with a groundswell for a, a, a constitutional amendment, then uh, we could even count on those uh, state votes. So there's going to be a lot of work, as you already pointed out. And also, of course, we want to continue to support as best we can, all the, like with birth choice and birthright and all the various good obria, the, you know, ministries that are working with post abortion, uh, with, uh, excuse me, with uh, clinics that will help people to make the decision in the right direction. And also work with all the folks that are doing post abortion syndrome, life choices, uh, life perspectives, uh, Rachel's Vineyard, et cetera. We want to really help them out too and be on the side of the angels. Wow. <laughs> but good. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Father, for taking the time to analyze this. Um, this has been a very difficult topic for a lot of people to wrap their heads around because it is so complex yeah. in the way that it's come out. Mm-hmm. We have a lot that we still would need to do when this decision comes out, but this is going to be an important step. Father, would you be so kind as mm-hmm. to both pray for us now and impart your blessing? Absolutely. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the life that you have given to all of us and the honor and the privilege to help in the defense of that life which you have endowed with the inalienable right of life. We ask, Lord, that you grant through your spirit and grant through a a movement that goes through this nation, a movement for justice, a movement for the love of life and the sacredness of life. Grant, Lord, success to the work of our hands. And may Almighty God bless all of you who are there to give you an enlightened perspective on this, to know also how important every human life is who will be protected, and to know that our country and our culture depends on it. For a country and a culture that does not defend life will not defend other liberties. And so may Almighty God bless you with this sense of justice and right and give you the energy to defend it. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. You have been listening to Orange County Catholic Radio. With me today has been Father Robert Spitzer and... If you have been moved by this, would like to share it with somebody else, you can do so by going to OCCatholic.com. 
at OCCatholic.com, you can go to the radio tab. You're going to look for Orange County Catholic Radio there, our flagship show. And shortly after this is broadcast, it'll be available as a podcast that you can download, you can listen to, or you can send a link to anybody that you would like to hear this. Once again, on behalf of all of us at Orange County Catholic Radio and for all Catholics everywhere who are praying for the salvation of everyone starting at the beginning of life and ending with our our faces beholding the face of Jesus in glory. Thank you for listening, and we will see you again next week.